From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. The United States has a crisis at its southern border, but several years before this became an American problem, the European Union was facing its own crisis. In 2011, the Syrian government launched a violent crackdown on public protests. That led to a civil war that has caused millions of people to flee the violence over the last 12 years, according to the United Nations Refugee Agency. But migrants are also pouring out of Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, and more recently, Sudan. What happens to the people on the run, the ones seeking safety, opportunity, and a happier, healthier life, when governments and aid organizations fail them? By 2015, the world watched news reports of refugees traveling in barely seaworthy vessels, often to the coast of Greece. You may remember the image from a particularly heart-stopping story of a little boy, just a toddler, face down on a Turkish beach, drowned. Months later, Dana Sachs learned about the dire humanitarian need of refugees in Greece who survived the dangerous crossing. She and some friends started their own aid effort to support the grassroots organizations that had already sprung up. They eventually launched a nonprofit, Humanity Now. Dana Sachs is a journalist whose work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal and National Geographic. She has written two novels and three books now of nonfiction. Her most recent, All Else Failed, The Unlikely Volunteers at the Heart of the Migrant Aid Crisis. She joins me now. Dana Sachs, welcome back to Coastline. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. It's so good to have you with us. There are so many places in the world where people are are hurting from some kind of lack. And there are people listening to this who are going to be so moved they will happily donate money to organizations that could help. There are people who will say, right, but I'm all tied up with efforts in my own geographic region right now. The people who are homeless and uh, food insecure and kids who need help who are right here in the Cape Fear region. And then there are people who who just won't care because they have their own struggles. Mm -hmm. How did this struggle that is happening from a Miles perspective so, so far away Mm -hmm. land inside of your soul? so deeply. Why this? Yeah, I think that's such an interesting question um, because I've thought about that a lot because why is it that that somebody's moved by one particular story or one particular crisis and perhaps also moved by something else but not necessarily moved enough to become engaged with it? And I think there's just a particular chemistry in, in our own minds and hearts that lead us to get involved in one thing and not something else. And for me, it's been, I've always been really interested in the plight of the displaced. And so that's not it's not so unusual that what what sort of really drew me to throw myself into it was this the situation um, of refugees in Greece. Um, following the crises in you know Syria and Afghanistan and uh, that that disaster brought me into that story but but I think 
whatever draws somebody, whatever speaks to their their hearts, and um, whatever uh, they feel that they can be helpful in, that's fantastic. You know, getting in, becoming engaged with something is the the most essential thing. I think. You so, so there was a moment. I mean, mm-hmm. you had seen the crisis unfolding mm-hmm. on the news. But there was a moment when a friend of yours from California called you mm-hmm. and said, I just came back from Greece. Well, she actually hadn't gone yet. She, we were talking on the phone. I was, I was walking my dog in Wilmington, and we're talking on the phone. And, and she said, I'm going over to Greece to help with the volunteer aid effort. And, I, and I, I had all these questions because, first of all, I didn't know that there was a volunteer aid effort. I, think, I had a sense, and I think a lot of people do, that when there's a major humanitarian disaster, these organizations that we hear about all the time and expect to be on the ground helping will be there, like the United Nations, the Red Cross, the International Rescue Committee. And so I just expected, like, well, I write my checks to some of the, you know, I, I, I give money. Aren't they there? And she said, no, they're not on the ground there. For all these reasons that I go into in my book, and I won't go into it now, that system was not functioning properly in that situation in um, 2015 and 2016. And she said, she said, so there's this whole grassroots movement that has sprung up in order to address what happens when people who are arriving in boats. And, and Rachel, sometimes there would be like 5,000 people arriving in a tiny Greek village on an island in in these tiny rubber boats, these dinghies, and they have nothing. You can't bring anything with you on a dinghy except for like maybe a small tiny bag or just your children or just the clothes on your back and your passport. And they were they were the ones who survived and a lot of people died were ending up on on the beaches and and coming off the boats and they were wet and sick and hungry. And um, they needed everything. They needed water and food and blankets. And often there was nothing there. And so first Greek villagers and then um, uh, tourists who happened to be, like, vacationing on the islands and and other people in other parts of the world who watched this on television or on the Internet and decided that they could be part of this help, this effort, showed up to help. And, And that's what my friend was getting involved in, and that's what she said uh, she said that whatever we could do would be something that wasn't being done by somebody else, so we could be helpful. So we went. And what did you? What What was the first thing you remember seeing? Well, the first thing I remember. So by the time I got there, the real center of the crisis had moved to northern Greece because the border had closed, and the people who had already arrived on the islands had made it north. And Europe, as you know, has open borders. But by the by early 2016, the European Union, in, a, in an effort to stop this migration, closed the border between Greece and Macedonia. And so people who had, had already arrived ended up just stuck because they weren't going to go back to their war-torn countries and they couldn't go forward. So there were something like maybe ten to 15,000 people basically just living in tents in a field right by the border, hoping that the, the border would open again, and it wasn't. And so the, the, the grassroots teams that we joined there needed to give food and clothing and whatever was available to people who were—some of them had been there for months, just whatever the, whatever they could do to help. So people could um, get through the days, basically. And so these people were fleeing often violence yes. from their countries, and many of them were Syrian. Right. Some of them were uh, from Pakistan. Many were from Iraq. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And we talked before we hopped on the air about the difference between migrant and refugee. Yeah. And can you just explain what the technical difference is in those terms? Sure. And you say there's also a political meaning. Yeah. To so um, after we talked, I found this passage in the book that that has the, the actual definitions from the United Nations. So I can tell you... Um, According to the UN, a refugee is or refugees are persons who are outside their country of origin from reasons of feared persecution, conflict, generalized violence or other circumstances that have seriously disturbed public order and as a result require international protection. That's the term for a refugee. A migrant, it's a bit trickier. Migrants, by this, their definition is, while there's no formal legal definition of an international migrant, most experts agree that, as, that an international migrant is someone who changes his or her country of usual residence irrespective of the reason for migration or legal status. And then there's another one, what's an asylum seeker? And the UN defines an asylum seeker as someone who says he or she is a refugee and seeks international protection from persecution or serious harm in their home country. So you could say that displaced people, that would be all of these people, are considered asylum seekers while this state pro- th- this sort of while the state processes their claim. And if the state accepts their claim, they're called a refugee. And if the state rejects their claim, they're called migrants. But as far as the political question, um, it's completely debatable. I mean, we now we're talking about my, like um, climate refugees. If you're a farmer and you have to leave your land because you, you could die because you, you're going to die of hunger, is that a refugee? Not by international standards, but we might need to change that sometime because people who have a, a serious, you know, a, a legitimate fear of death are refugees. So what does it mean? So are we talking, so when we say refugee then, I you're saying that it, there's a technical designation. It means the person has been deemed, uh, their, their request for asylum is legitimate. Right. It's been approved. Yes. Right. Right. But all of these people that we're talking about whether we call them migrants or refugees, are people fleeing something, right? It's not because they say, ah, Germany looks, I just like the topography better there, and I think I want to try some German beers. I mean, we're always talking about people running from something that impacts their their quality of life or even their ability to continue to survive. Right. I mean— I think there's going to be people who are listening who would not agree with that, that we're always talking about people who are running to survive. I, I, think, I think the vast majority of people who leave their homelands in times of crisis are doing so because they don't feel they have a choice. And so I'm, I'm really of the, of the belief that when people, when people flee, we should take their concerns very seriously and we should respect their suffering and we should do what we can to help. And that's why I'm involved in this. But it's a political question. And, I mean, we know from all the debates about the border, everything about immigration in this country, that it's not settled. It isn't. (laughs) You're listening to Coastline. Author, journalist, and humanitarian worker Dana Sachs is my guest today. After this short break, more on what she witnessed in the refugee camps in Greece that caused her to launch a nonprofit with friends. Stay with us. 
I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Dana Sachs has written three works of nonfiction. Her most recent, All Else Failed, The Unlikely Volunteers at the Heart of the Migrant Aid Crisis. The book chronicles the grassroots volunteer efforts to help the hundreds of thousands of people seeking asylum and opportunity who find themselves stuck in camps that in many cases lack basic sanitation, nutritious food, and other important needs. There's a book discussion on May 16, 2023 at 5.30 here at WHQR with author Dana Sachs. You can find details on our website at whqr.org. Dana, when we first spoke in 2016 on this program about your interest in this issue, you said that, yes, a big part of your motivation was humanitarian, but you also talked about international security at the time. You said that keeping refugees from going back to their homeland in many cases was uh, where they would be often forced into service of terrorist-like organizations Mm -hmm. was, uh, in a way, saving the world from from uh, more more terrorism. Do you still feel that way? And do you still see it that way after what you've been through? I, I, yeah, I, I definitely feel that's, that's the case. I also, I think I've become more convinced because I've spent so much time with refugees and um, particularly the people that I, whose lives I describe in my book, um, that I see them as this extraordinary resource for our world and that they bring so much potential. These are the people who manage to get out of, you know, terrible, terrible situations and save themselves. And they have so many talents and skills. And um, stable countries of the world have a demographic problem. We don't have We don't have enough people to be serving food or taking care of our elderly or teaching. There's so many things we need done that I see this as a um, as one of the solutions to the problems that wealthy countries have in terms of population. Um, but I think that, that for other people to see that, it requires a mind shift to start to understand that the people, for example, that I describe in my book are people just like us, not others, not somebody different. I mean, if some, I, I talk about for example, a woman named Rima from um, Syria who becomes a refugee. She's a housewife in her in her ta- her suburban town in in Syria, and um, she cares about having parties and she's raising her children and she likes organic cosmetics and she's sudden, a very middle class. She's a very lady. middle class person. Yes, and then she becomes a refugee. And so, I think about the the times that 
I or those of us who live in comfortable places see photographs of refugees and we see them as so different from us because they're carrying their, their belongings in a plastic bag. But the reason they're carrying belongings in a plastic bag is because of something that terrible that happened in their country and they had to flee. So they are us. If this, if this happened to us in, in our country, we would also be carrying our belongings in a plastic bag. So it's not that they're different from us. It's that their experience is different from us, and they're in this stage of life of transition. And it, I hope that people can start to see it that way rather than seeing them as a threat because they have so much potential. That's such a beautiful way to look at it. I mean, certainly uh, just the addition to the job market. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, yeah. in terms of you talked about some of the specific areas where we do need help and wealthier nations do need help. But I, when you talk about people that way, these mm-hmm. people who are us, mm-hmm. I also think about the potential inside of them that what if they were completely taken care of? What if their needs were met? Are we looking at a little girl who could be developing the next cure for cancer where you don't lose all your hair or a little boy who writes the next great novel that transforms people's imaginations. Absolutely. And, and I mean, the word you used, you said, that's a beautiful way to look at it. Yeah, it is a beautiful way to look at it. But if we think of it as beautiful, then some people might roll their eyes. I think it's a practical way to look at it. I think it's a sustainable way to look at it. It's it's something that we need. Um, it's also positive for those people. It all, I don't want to just think about refugees. What can they do for us in our country, but or in Europe, you know? But I but I do want to see them in a way that is more positive and that they're not. It's not just a negative thing. Yeah. So when you were on this program in 2016, and the show at the time was live and we were taking phone calls, someone called in Mm -hmm. and asked if you had thought about putting any of your observations and experiences in the Greek refugee camps into a book. (laughs) And there was some back and forth. Well, I don't know. Maybe (laughs) I I just haven't really thought of. And now here we are with this book, (laughs) All Else Failed, The Unlikely Volunteers at the Heart of the Migrant Aid Crisis. Mm -hmm. What what turned it for you and made you say, yes, this needs to be a book? Okay, that's funny. I forgot about that. Um, a couple of things. I think one of the things is that when I was at, when I first went to Greece in 2016 and I was at this camp called Edomani and doing what I could to be helpful, even though I didn't really know what I was doing, but we were volunteering, we were learning. I was so surprised that it was people like me who ha- who were really shouldering the burden at that point. I don't want to say I was I was the one. I write about people who really threw themselves in for several years. Um, that's not what I was doing. But but I was really surprised that this grassroots aid effort even existed. Much less that it was ca- ca- taking on so much responsibility. So I, as a writer. I felt like that's a story that is not being told. And so, you know, there's there has been a lot written about refugees, and I have a lot to say about refugees, but there has not been a lot written about the ways that people are getting involved, not just people like us, but refugees themselves who became part of this grassroots aid movement also to care for themselves and their own communities. And that story seemed really important to me. And also, 
Um, not just important because it hadn't been told, but but I feel like it can be inspiring to people to see the ways that we as individuals can can get involved and be a part of a solution to the problems that the world faces, not just for refugees. I mean, it could be for climate change, and we're seeing that all over. But this is one aspect to it that was not really hasn't gotten the attention that it deserves. And part of the reason this grassroots volunteer uh, effort landscape, I mean, there are Mm -hmm. so many organizations, volunteer organizations working on this. They've sprung up because the government wasn't there. And because those, those big organizations that you expect to step in and shoulder the heaviest part of the the load, setting up infrastructure for people, providing for their basic needs like sanitation and water and food and clothing. They weren't there. Where was the Red Cross? Where was the UN? Where, what happened? (laughs) So, I mean, this is a really complicated question. And, and, and they were, they were there in minimal ways. And then later they were there in, in more substantial ways. And now again, they're not there as much as we need them to be there. Um, They're spread very thin. They're not all run very well. Some people are more competent than others. Some organizations are more competent than others. And I want to say a shout out for Doctors Without Borders, which is extremely That's the competent. one organization that you call out in the book yeah. as, as being flawless in I mean, terms of showing up and doing yeah. what they could do. I can't. I mean, I know they're not flawless, but they are they are what from what I've seen, they are what we want them to be. And I can't say that for some of for a lot of the other organizations. Um I just think the entire global humanitarian system is not working properly. And and um, I I've never worked in a large humanitarian organization. I'm not an insider. I don't know if the insiders are capable of figuring out what the answers are, but as an outsider, it's not that's not my expertise. I can just say like I give an example like a house is burning down and you expect the fire trucks to come. Uh, and they don't show up. So the neighbors go in and they put out the fire. And I can't tell you exactly why the house is burning down. And I can't tell you exactly why the fire trucks didn't come or what we need to do to make the fire trucks better. I am trying to chronicle what these neighbors did and the ways that their work were so important in putting out this fire or trying to make the fire less bad. But I do think that that work has to be done to figure out why the global humanitarian aid system is is so ineffective all over the world, not just in what I've seen in Greece or more recently in, in Poland um, with the Ukrainian crisis. You're listening to Coastline. We're talking with Dana Sachs, author of All Else Failed, The Unlikely Volunteers at the Heart of the Migrant Aid Crisis. Help us understand, because we've talked sort of generally about uh, the missing aid for people like food, shelter, and clothing. And you talked specifically about people arriving on the beach wet with nothing, maybe one small bag and their kids. But what are some of the conditions that that you observed in the refugee camps in Greece that people might find surprising? Okay, so I'll, I'll tell you about trash. All right, because trash is something that we really take for granted. We um, we put our trash out and then it's gone. But if nobody comes to pick up your p- trash, then it just accumulates and it becomes uh, a public health crisis. It becomes uh, 
mental health crisis, um, you know, it, it becomes a real problem. And um, so I'll give you an example. We, Humanity Now, uh, was uh, providing funding in a refugee camp in Les- on Lesbos Island in um, in Greece in, this is probably like in 2018. And uh, the government was receiving a huge amount of money, like millions and millions of dollars to pay for the functioning of this camp, which was called Moria Camp. It was one of the most famously horrible camps in the in the world. And um, it was way overcrowded. It, it was There was enough room for 3,000 people. And when we were there at this one point, there were like 10,000 people living there. And so it was like a subway station at rush hour all the time. It was just full of people. And they weren't, they weren't removing, the government wasn't removing the trash um, effectively. So there were mountains of trash. So we, one of the people that we worked with um, a lot, I, I write about him in my book, I call him Ibrahim, he's a Syrian, who actually worked in humanitarian relief in Syria until he became a refugee himself. And he arrived in Greece and he was planning to go north to maybe Germany. And then he looked around and saw the, the humanitarian disaster in Greece. And he said, I think I'll stick around here for a while and be a volunteer and see what I can do to help. And he became a real leader in this this movement. And he was, he's been one of our most important advisors all along. And he said, I'm trying to pull together funding from a lot of different small organizations to deal with this trash problem. So if, if Humanity Now can give me a few thousand euros, I'm getting it from other people, and we can solve this problem. We can do it by paying for one more trash pickup a week. Instead of one, there would be two. And so we participated in this kind of group effort, and they they got the trash cleared up. And so there wasn't a mountain of trash anymore. So that was great. That was a really effective thing. But it was also... um, frustrating because you'd see you, you could see what needed to be done which wasn't being done and that was upsetting as well in some of these camps possibly even Maria um, I don't have them all straight in my head mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from the book but you talked about people uh, living in basically mud when it would rain yeah. and there would be flooding and the floors on which they were sleeping weren't solid hard floors and so they they just be wet and muddy exactly i mean anybody who's gone camping in the rain knows that that your your tent is on dirt so when the dirt gets wet your tent gets wet and and also these are many 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 tents maybe a thousand tents all close together so there's there's no kind of like way of of dealing with the puddles it just it just stay the water just stays so people were literally sleeping in puddles of water or not sleeping in puddles of water because they could you can't sleep like that. Yeah, and that so many um, physical issues that come along with what oh, yeah. with the trash and with the flooding. Rats, t- snakes, yes, mosquitoes. Right. Yeah. And then when it's too cold for those things, snow. they're they're cold. And snow is falling on your tent. Right. And you have no heater. So it's really, uh, it's it's a horrible existence. It's not even that it doesn't live up to the land of milk and honey that they thought they were finding, but it's it's beyond some of our worst it's nightmares. It's inhumane. Yeah. yeah. There's a passage in the book that kind of encapsulates the loss of one of the families mm-hmm. that you follow, the mm-hmm. Khalils. Mm-hmm. And in this, they've, they've made it to Germany, which is where they were headed, but right. it took a very long time. And yeah. Would you mind just... No, for sure. Um, I'll... 
So, so I follow this family all the way through the book um, from – it starts in, when they're in Syria in Damascus and um, the, they have two little girls and their school is bombed and um, they, de- they decide they have to leave um, and they flee and they keep thinking we're not going to go very far. We're going to go back to Syria as soon as we can and they keep – circumstances keep pushing them farther, farther, farther away and they end up eventually in Germany. Um, so this paragraph is uh, – Right at the point when they're when they're finally arriving in Germany, which is something they've hoped for, but there's a, a sense of loss as well. So I'll read this. Over a year had passed since the Khalils had escaped their homeland. They had hoped and lost hope, trusted and lost trust. They had stood at the border and sobbed. They had panicked. They had fought to keep their children alive. They had given and they had received. They had used their last diaper, spent their last euro, eaten their last disc of bread, then somehow managed to acquire more. It was an extraordinary success story, really, if you chose to look at it like that. Yet they had lost nearly everything in their lives except their family, including their home, their livelihood, their possessions, and their country. Every day now, their hearts breaking, they watch from a distance as their homeland shattered, they had pined for Syria and longed for Europe. I think one of the things that moves me so much about that particular passage is the idea of of pining for your homeland and watching it fall apart. Yeah, yeah. Um, the mother in that family, Salma, they're, they're very close friends of mine now. And, and um, there's a point in the book when, when they're, um, they're leaving – well, the various points in the book, she's she's they get out of Syria, which is which is a war torn country, and they've had family members die and injured, and they've lost literally lost their home to bombing, and still every time I said to her like, "How did you feel when you got to Turkey? How did you feel when you got to Greece?" Always she said, "It was fine, but it was not Syria. It was not Syria. I I nothing is as as." perfect for me as Syria. And that sense of um, the loss. I mean, I can think about it if I think about, you know, I'm in my homeland. And if I had to leave possibly forever and leave my neighborhood and my neighbors and my friends and my family, and suddenly you're all over the world and separated from each other, that's a huge heartbreak. And she still experiences that. You, you saw them. I saw them. Recently. I did. I saw them in February. I went to visit them. And how are they doing? What is life like for them now? Are they still in yeah, Germany? They're still in Germany. They have they I mean life is pretty good. You know, they have they have an apartment now. They have a car. We I was with my friend Catherine that we had met them. The first time we met them, they lived in a tent at Idomene camp in northern Greece, and this time they had an apartment. We stayed with them. And um they have two new children, so they have five children now. And, and she's funny. She's like, we're done. We are so done. <laughs> and so they're doing well, um, but they are not living in their own country, and they have to always kind of um, negotiate what it means. Like, for example, the parents don't speak as good German as the children do, and one of the daughters has a um, has a pretty serious medical condition that she's lived with her whole life, um, her, her bladder and her... Um, and her kidneys. And um, she's 16, and she speaks much better German than her parents. So she's trying to negotiate and navigate the the medical system in Germany by herself, because she doesn't have anybody else to do it. And and the other daughter is trying, they're trying to figure out legal things, and they just don't know any answers. So it's hard. 
Yeah, and I want to hear more about Germany for okay. refugees from mm -hmm. Syria, since Germany has taken so many. Yeah. You're listening to Coastline. Dana Sachs is my guest today. After this short break, we'll also find out how the volunteers protect their own mental health and the toll that this work can take. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Dana Sachs traveled to Greece in 2016 to begin the humanitarian work that would eventually lead to the launch of Humanity Now, a nonprofit dedicated to helping migrants fleeing violence and poverty who land in Greece. Today, they're also directing efforts towards victims of the war in Ukraine. Dana Sachs' most recent work of nonfiction, All Else Failed, The Unlikely Volunteers, at the heart of the migrant aid crisis. There's a book discussion on May 16th, 2023 at 5.30 here at WHQR with author Dana Sachs. You can find more details on our website at whqr.org. And Dana, just before we went to break, you were talking about the Khalil family with whom you have remained friends mm -hmm. and are very close to now, just visited them a few months ago in Germany. Uh, Syrian refugees yes. who now are making their lives in, in Germany. From certainly we can understand the loss of the homeland and um, the loss to them. What is it like for people from the Middle East living in a place like Germany? I mean, is there, Germany has taken so many refugees in, especially people from Syria, do they feel welcome? Is there tension? Is there uh, cultural tension, racial, ethnic tension? What is it like? I think, I mean, I'm just sort of speaking based on what, what they've told me. I think they feel very welcomed by the the nation of Germany and the, um, the government and uh, uh, this, the children are going to school and they're learning what they need to learn and uh, but they they I think there is some sense they're, they're very isolated in a Syrian community they don't they don't have a lot of German friends a few but but there, it's kind of it ends up people kind of congregate with people they're comfortable with um, but in Germany now there's there's a lot of people from Syria and so there's markets where they can buy the kinds of food they need and even in they're in a small city but um, they can they can get what they need that reminds them of home and that sort of thing. So um, it it I think Germany has has been very welcoming, and that's been positive. So in all else failed, you talk so much. It's it's really about the people who became the the backbone of the volunteer assistance yeah. for these migrants, and uh, you 
you talk about Ibrahim, who's an important figure in your book, who was a Syrian refugee himself and landed in Greece and looked at the need and said, I think I need to stay. And the way you describe the pace of his work and how surly he can appear to people (laughs) who are interrupting his workflow and wasting his time and how un- welcome meetings are because they're a waste of time because they're not actively helping people. Can you just talk about, I mean, he was a certain personality, Yeah. but so many of the people that you describe do have that sort of frenetic pace that they get very little sleep and they wake up the next day and do it all over again. Can Mm -hmm. you kind of explain why it has become like that. Yeah, and this this was fascinating to me. I, I never lived like they. I, I've always gone back and forth um, from here to visit and to figure out how we can support these aid teams. But the people who work on the aid teams um, really have thrown themselves into it. And, and, and I follow... So the book follows seven individuals and families through this period of time, and often they they end up meeting each other and working together. It's seven different threads um, that I hope tell this whole story. Um, But of those threads, four are are refugees that became involved in the the, um, relief effort. They became volunteers. And three are people from countries like us who, who... had the compassion and the empathy to to sort of throw themselves into this situation. Um, One woman from New Zealand and two from the UK, and they went to Greece and stayed and and helped run these these aid organizations. And um, uh, the stress that they were under, I mean, I would say the refugee volunteers were also under stress, and you're describing Ibrahim, and um, that's, that's really true. But the refugees have like a global stress from like everything and so in some ways the volunteer stress was was incidental to the larger questions of what's going to happen in their lives but when you you can sort of almost like see the if you just focus on these these three women from peaceful countries you can see the effect of of volunteering um on their their mental health, their um, their attitudes toward the world, and their um, their sense of the what's priori- pri- what the priorities are in their own lives. One of them, she's getting married right before her first trip, and and she go and then she she goes to Greece, and it changes the way she sees the whole world. And over the course of the book, you see what happens to her marriage because of that. And so, um, I really wanted to explore um, what kind of um, the, the sort of emotional expense of this kind of work for people that don't have a way to protect themselves um, psychologically. And, and they're seeing people die, and they're seeing people suffer, and there's they're doing what they can to help, but there's a limit to how much they can help. They don't have the resources they need. So um, th- I, I felt like this was very also an important thing to, to look into. And now these days, because many, you know, seven years have gone by since that period, and there is a lot more effort um, on the grassroots teams to protect the mental health of volunteers, both both um, the refugee volunteers and the, the volunteers who are from stable countries. And that's really important. You talk in the book about questions they have to ask themselves mm-hmm. when they're sort of figuring out what the rules are. And one of the yeah. questions is, can I become friends with yeah. this person who is a refugee yeah. whom I care about deeply? 
Yes. And I want to have this person over to my apartment to give them a good meal and a a clean and safe place to sleep. Yeah. What what is the answer to that question? Like what is what why is that a fraught question in the first place? And and I mean this is uh, this is a question I ask my I've asked myself. I mean I'm I'm a volunteer. I'm also writing a book about people that have become my friends and and sort of navigating that um, c- very complicated relationship that has many different aspects to it. Um, for me personally, I constantly had to sort of step back and ask myself questions like. Are they going to feel obligated to me? I'm the, like I'm. I'm inter. I'm, the I spent hours. Yeah. The yeah. I spent hours interviewing people. I mean, de- over years, like hours, and then six months later, many more hours, and 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 sort of. Okay, so what are they? This is this is someone who has no home. What's my responsibility to them? So, but then on the other hand, I felt like I'm a journalist. I I'm not buying this this interview. I'm not giving them money to in order to. Um, speak to me it's their choice and but it felt it was complicated but do they so then do they feel obligated to expose themselves to you and maybe they wouldn't have if they didn't see the possibility yeah that something would benefit yes for sure i mean the the family we just talked about the khalil family when i met them i mean now i've been friends with them for seven years and um when i met them I'm sure that they saw me as somebody who might be able to provide them with something when they're living in a tent in a camp on the border in Greece in a field. I'm sure. I would have that's exactly what I would have. It's not like, oh, let's just be friends with this person. So so there's gonna be some kind of um question of, of what, you know, material gain of something like that. Um, but there's also an aspect of like trying to understand people from a different culture and trying to open yourself to other experience. And and um, so, I mean, I can easily say, oh, they just want, you know, they're my friends and we became friends. But I have to understand that there's a lot of different levels of a relationship like that in a power dynamic. And, and then there's also this question of I'm asking them about often about periods of their lives that were traumatic. So am I re-traumatizing them to ask them these questions? And um, I mean, I can't, I can't answer that in a definitive way, but I can say that the, and this is, I mean, to my benefit to say this, but I felt, I've always felt like the people that tell me their stories, they choose the stories they want to tell. Sometimes they are traumatic stories. And I feel like you're, you're empowering people to give them the opportunity to tell their story. And, and and the people that I interviewed, I interviewed over so many years, and they continued to want to talk to me. So in some ways, it was something that they they wanted to do. I think being heard is something that we as humans wish for. And so I'm sitting there recording them telling their whole story of, of their traumas, and, and as well as not traumatic things, but you know, aspects of their lives. And I think um, I, my only thing I can guess for the reason, because it's complicated, but was in part that they wanted to be heard and that that was valuable to them. Yeah. Going back to just what it, the experience of mm-hmm. being a refugee, fleeing Syria, and first of all, getting out of the country. I mean, yeah. that's, its own, that's its own kind of strategic plan that you have to make with safe houses and yeah. and dodging uh, soldiers 
Right. Uh, and well, can you just explain briefly why people can't just <laughs> say, bye, Syria, I'm yeah. going to try something else. Uh, why, yeah. why is that difficult? Well, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of reasons. But one of the things I write about in my book is that is that able-bodied men are wanted to be in the military. And so it's not easy for them to leave because the government might not let them. So so they have to find ways to get out um, that are trickier or, or, or more expensive. I mean, in some ways, it's just it's a question of um, bribing the right people. So, so there's that. Mm-hmm. And once they're out, mm-hmm. then there's a, a, the crossing of the Aegean yeah. that is very dangerous because they may or may not be in a seaworthy vessel. Too many right. people are probably crammed onto it because that's what mm-hmm. the smugglers do. Yeah. Um, and you, as you said earlier, many people didn't make it mm-hmm. and died on the way. But these two of the volunteers that you talk about in the book, uh, the New Zealander and one from England. Jenny James and Tracy Myers. Yes. Mm-hmm. You talk about uh, how they would rescue people yeah. who would be coming to the, they would stand with binoculars at the hotel window mm-hmm. or somewhere or right out on, on the, the beach, beach. Yeah. And, and watch for boats because they knew this was a moment that they could save people if necessary. And yeah. it happened a lot. It happened a lot, a lot. There were a lot of rescue teams out on the beaches because the beaches are often rocky or the boats come in at points where it might look from the boat like that's a safe place, but it wouldn't be. And so there were lots of volunteer teams that were just doing rescue and they'd wait on the beach or they'd see they'd see the boats coming in. They have different ways of, of figuring out when boats are coming in and where they might arrive. And they'd be there and they'd form these sort of human chains, everybody holding onto a rope to walk out to where the boat was and help people off the boats because sometimes the boats wouldn't end up right on the right on the sand. And some people couldn't swim. So Jenny, I mean, she she told me these stories because she was not a swimmer herself, and she was afraid of the water. And she would walk out on this rope line, and she'd be terrified that somebody else who couldn't swim would jump on top of her, and they could both drown. And so over time, that she got more confident. But the terror of that. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a specific day that was absolutely harrowing. Yeah. And, and you were talking later with mm-hmm. Tracy about it. Mm-hmm. And you write that Tracy said, we have lines of children half dead waiting to be hung upside down so we can pound the water out of their tiny lungs, boat after boat. We have ambulances, wailing, soaked, terrified people. And she goes on. And I just, some of, it was just so... I, did they really have to hang children upside down to pound water out of yeah, their lungs? Yeah, there was one boat. It was um, now I can't remember the date, but it was in October of 2015. And um, this law. Lo- so not everybody came over on these rubber dinghies. Some people came over on larger wooden boats that seemed more safe and substantial, but actually they could be dangerous in their own way. And usually they would put the women and the children down inside in the hold. And then if the boat, when it arrived, got um, like would maybe sometimes they just went down in out in the open sea and sometimes they would they would hit a rock or something and people would get stuck on the boats or they would capsize and and the women and children would be in the most dangerous place because the water could come in into the hold and they couldn't get out so this one this was a, a huge disaster i think over the course of 
um, the, the, the seas were really rough. And so that boat sank and a, a several dozen people died and then other boats were sinking. So there were like 50 people died in the course of just a couple of days. But Tracy was talking about this big wooden boat that, that sank and all these, you know, the, the Greek Coast Guard and there were these Spanish lifeguards who'd come to be grassroots volunteers and they were helping. So all these people were trying to get people out of the water. And um, yeah, the, the, the children, there were children and, and that was a, that was just a, a, a way to try to get the water out of their, out of their bodies that turned them upside down. And she talked about these beautiful people and, yes. and it was, I mean, she was breaking at, the, at that yes. point, but it comes back to, and we just have about a minute left, yeah. uh-huh. uh, your creation with, with some friends of humanity now. Yeah. This is this is a nonprofit, right? And tell right. us who it serves and how. So, three friends and I, Jennifer Maravillas, Stephanie Myers, and Carol Atwood, were we were all living in Wilmington, and um, we're all kind of inspired by this grassroots aid movement to do what we could to help. So, it's very simple what we do. We raise money here in the United States often among our donors here locally. And um, we take it over to Greece and now to Poland and and spend it on grassroots aid efforts. Um, so small teams that are doing amazing work that can do a lot with a few thousand dollars. And we've been doing it for seven years and um, it's been really, it's been really productive. And of course, we'll have a link on our website if people yeah. are interested in finding out more. And we're all volunteers, and 100% of the money that people donate goes to these projects, not, not to You even travel using your own we funds. We spend our own money completely. Yeah. That's this edition of Coastline Dana Sachs. Thank you so much Thank for being you, with Rachel. us. Thank you, Rachel. It was a pleasure. The book, All Else Failed, The Unlikely Volunteers at the Heart of the Migrant Aid Crisis. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Find us on Facebook at WHQR's Coastline Hosted By. Find the episode and details at WHQR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline.